This is, we're continuing our series looking at identity, gender, and sexuality. And we're at part four this morning. Uh, Can you remember last time that we heard about the hoo-ha? Do you remember the hoo-ha? Yeah? The, um, The gay Anglican bishops who were meeting at the Lambeth Conference, which happens once every many years, and the hoo-ha was that some of the bishops said, we're not coming if these gay bishops have their spouses invited and, and uh, joining in the conference too. That's a step too far, uh, these African bishops were saying. And we also heard about the 70 mainly Baptist ministers who, in, U- in the UK who wrote to the Baptist Union of Great Britain and said, look, we feel that Baptist ministers who are gay should be allowed to marry their spouses, their same-sex spouses. We want the wording changed in the Baptist minister's rules so that they can get married and they're no longer committing uh, gross indecency or something like that. So we heard about those situations, which left us with some questions, didn't it? More questions than answers. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news on Friday, but the Bishop of Oxford, alongside two other bishops, one of Worcestershire, I think, Worcester, not sure, and somewhere else, but three Anglican bishops in this country said, look, the Church of England needs to listen and we need to change our policy to come in line with the Church of Wales and the Church of Scotland to allow same-sex marriages in our churches, including vicars getting married to their partners too. Uh, And their their thinking was, God is love, which is true, isn't it? The Bible says God is love. And if God is love, then surely he would embrace anything that is loving. So if you've got a loving relationship between two men or two women and they want to get married, surely God wants that. And the church needs to change in order to accept that. That's basically his argument. And... Uh, Bishop, I can't remember his name now, but the Bishop of Oxford apologised in his 52-page letter. He apologised to the LGBTQ plus community and said uh, that the Church of England had been slow to change their views and practices concerning homosexuality and gay marriage. And he was apologising to the, the gay community, saying, we're sorry, we haven't changed soon enough. Okay. So that was his argument. Uh, that's, that's that Bishop Stephen Croft's opinion and theological understanding. But we've got to ask ourselves, how does God really feel about the subsequent additions to his original design of two genders, male and female, their identity and marriage being between a male and a female? How does God feel about the changes that have happened? And is he now? wanting to embrace them? Has God really moved with the times and the church needs to change, just like the Bishop of Oxford says? Or have the times moved from God? Now, if I'm someone who experiences same-sex attraction, does Jesus want me to embrace it and have sexual relations with someone of the same sex and get married? If it is apparent that Jesus says, no, that's not what I want, then am I willing to deny myself 
in that area in order to choose Jesus' will over mine? Or if, like the Bishop of Oxford, I think that Jesus approves of me being homosexually active, then what scriptures am I standing on that confirms this, apart from the one that says God is love? So shall we firstly answer the question, has God moved with the times? What would you say? What would your answer be if someone said, do you think God has changed? Do you think God has moved with the times? What would your answer might be, Andy? Yeah, God is also holy. Okay. Yeah, Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that's coming along in the next month, I think. So we'll cover that. Yeah. We won't turn there because it'll take us too long because you're slow at turning there and I've got it already there. So, Yeah, he never changes mind. That's a good one, Linda. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Okay? 1 Samuel 15.29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Psalm 55.19, God who is enthroned from old who does not change. Malachi 3.6, which is probably the one you quote to someone, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does God change with the times? No. So over the years, since he said what he said in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is it conceivable that he's changed his mind? No. Can we assume that nearly 2,000 years on, he now thinks differently about gender, identity, and sexuality and marriage? No. If he does not change, then he does not change, no matter how many years transpire. No matter, how, no matter how people change, he's not a human being, but he will change his mind. Are we sure about that, that God does not change ever? Especially as there are now practicing gay bishops leading churches, Baptist ministers, gay Baptist ministers leading churches, and many other churches conducting and blessing gay marriages, and possibly hundreds of thousands of Christians experiencing same-sex attraction. Are you sure that God hasn't changed? Yeah? Surely God has changed his mind and given us the green light by now. You say no? All right, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Remember, every good and perfect gift is from our Father above. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talking our. 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. That includes snakes. Because they're going to come across, they're going to come across a sneaky snake, aren't they, in a couple of chapters? Yeah? You were created in God's likeness so that you would rule and reign over these things, including the snake. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. The, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now skip to verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Believe it or not, we human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. Do you know the Bible says we're the apple of his eye? It wasn't until the sixth day when he made Adam and Eve that his description of creation changed from good to very good. From getting there to done. Everything else was made after its own kind. But mankind was the only thing God chose to make after his kind. In his image, in his likeness. Now, it's tragic to think that Satan would soon trick Adam and Eve into thinking or failing to see how much they were already like God, already reflecting the character and the nature of God. Now, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but can you remember what it was that the devil tempted Adam and Eve in order to get them to eat from the, the forbidden tree? Do you remember what he says? You will be like God. When you do this, you'll know everything he does and you will be like God. When the sad fact was, they were already like God, weren't they? The reality was, just by being who they were within the sphere of God's simple design and instruction, they were already like God in his likeness. What they soon found out, however was whenever you step beyond God's simple instruction, you actually swap the likeness of God for the likeness of his enemy. Skip to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now at this point, Adam and Eve knew only good. In fact, very good. They had no knowledge of evil, no experience of evil. Have you ever picked up a little baby? And a little bit jealously looked at them and thought, oh, you're so innocent. You know, I'm quite jealous of your innocence. You pretty much only know good, most, most babies anyway. They pretty much only experience good at the beginning. But have you ever also looked at a baby and been jealous of his innocence, but also felt slightly a tinge of sadness, knowing what they may experience later on? The evil that they're going to encounter? Now back to the garden. 
We also know from Genesis 2.9 that this forbidden tree was in the middle of the garden. But also in the middle of the garden was another important tree. Do you know what the name of that tree is? Anyone apart from Andy? Because <laughs> we know you know your Bible, Andy. It was the tree of life. Adam and Eve had the wonderful privilege of eating from every tree in the garden except for the one, the knowledge of good and evil. So they were able to eat from the tree of life, weren't they? Whenever they wanted to. If you take into account the physical, emotional and spiritual effects Adam and Eve experienced from eating the forbidden tree, which was substantial as we later find out, can you imagine the, the possible physical, emotional and spiritual effects of eating from the tree of life? Can you imagine how that would affect you? For the positive? According to the book of Revelation, just in its leaves alone, in the tree of life's leaves alone, there is healing for nations. If an apple a day can keep the doctor away, what about a bite from the fruit of the tree of life? Would you like to eat from that particular tree? Well, what is wonderful is that if you belong to Jesus, we who belong to Jesus, one day, even though we or our original ancestors do not deserve it and messed up completely, Jesus promises this in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 2. Keep your fingers, hold on. I don't know what you can do with your phones, but keep your fingers in Genesis and go to the back of the book, Revelations chapter 2. Because Jesus promises one day you will eat from the tree of life. Revelation 2.7 Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is that you? Are you part of the churches? Yeah? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in the very beginning, the Bible, we read here in Genesis, and now keep your fingers in Revelation, we hear of two people temporarily in the garden. But in the very end, in Revelation, a bit later on in the book of Revelation, we hear that there is a multitude, multitudes in the garden. Isn't that amazing? In Genesis, there was two just temporarily there. In Revelation, there is multitudes, too many to count, in the garden with the tree of life. So what happened to transform the two temporarily into the multitudes forever and ever? Well, it's right in the middle of the Bible, isn't it? It's when Jesus Christ, God himself, came in human form, the second Adam, it says in the Bible. He came and through his sacrificial death, or through his birth, firstly, through his sacrificial death, through his a resurrection from death and ascension, he made the way through repentance and faith in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he made the way so that the two temporarily could turn in to the multitudes permanently. Isn't that amazing? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? The one who died for you so that when you repent to him, receive his forgiveness and be transformed in the inside and join to his spirit permanently. That's amazing, isn't it? Has my battery died? 
Should I use the hand mic? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Oh, I can't wave my arms around as much now. All right, I can put, I can put my book here. All right, where are we? Okay. Right, let's, but for now, let's go back. You stay in Revelation, but we'll go back in our minds to the garden at the beginning. Now, we can assume that the rebellion or the fall of Satan from heaven has already happened because God had to include this one tainted tree in the garden. Now, I don't think God's purpose for this one forbidden tree was to tantalise God's new children, but it was rather to confine evil to one spot on the earth. Evil was there. What do I do with it? Boom. There you stay. There shall you remain unless man gives you authority. So, but if you are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what do you do when Lucifer, one of your chief angels, turns hell-bent on evil and leads a rebellion in heaven, taking a third of your angels with him? What do you do with him and them if you're God? Well, the first thing you do is you create a place for them. Yeah? Jesus described it or said this in Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. Jesus said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God made hell for the devil. Sadly, people choose to follow him there as well when they reject Jesus. But there is a place God made for the devil, the eternal fire also known as hell, which is for the imprisonment of the devil and his demons. And we know from the end, book of Revelation, that when Jesus returns, that will actually happen. The devil and his demons will be locked away in hell. I'll read from Revelation 20.10 for you. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. There will, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the devil's future. And then what comes next after the devil has been thrown into hell forever and ever is there is a new earth, a new garden, without the presence of evil, no need for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just the tree of life, which you have free access to because of what Jesus did for you. But in the meantime, until that time in the future, why would God allow the enemy to be present in the garden, now, and until Jesus returns? Why not lock him away in hell? Instantly he rebelled. Why all this pain and suffering in between? Well, Answers on the postcard. Because I'm yet to see a clear answer to that in Scripture. However, I'll give it a stab. There's this strange bit in the end or near the end of Revelation. Is it chapter 18 or 19? I'm not sure. But there's a bit at the end in Revelation where it talks about the devil being locked away for a thousand years. And Jesus comes to reign with an iron rod. 
And that's probably the thousand years reign of Jesus where we talk about the scriptures where it says um, uh, that the um, weapons will be turned into plowshares. The lion will lay with the lamb. Children will be playing in a snake's nest or something like that. It's a totally different world for a thousand years because Jesus is reigning. The devil has been locked away. But what's even more strange is that after that thousand years, it says the devil is released for a short time. And what happens? Chaos and carnage again. Multitudes follow him and rebel against God. And then Jesus locks him. Actually, it was an angel Jesus sent to lock the devil away forever and ever and ever. What does that thousand years tell us in his release? Well, one of the things it tells us is how easily people are led astray by the devil, even though they've experienced a beautiful reign of King Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. All of a sudden, they are deceived by the deceiver. How quick they are to reject the rule of Jesus when they think something else better has come along or been revealed. The devil seems to be good at offering a seemingly better alternative to what God has said, doesn't he? Shall I repeat that? I've written in bold. The devil seems to be good at offering a seemingly better alternative to what God has said. Maybe the devil has not yet been locked away for that reason. In order for someone to truly choose to love God wholeheartedly, there needs to be a present resisting force in the opposite direction. True love and devotion to God is love that has been challenged and yet has come out the other side. Maybe, are you still in Revelation 2.7? If you're not, you're naughty because I said to stay there. Revelation 2.7. Maybe that is why Jesus meant what Jesus meant when he said, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. How can you be victorious in your love for him if your love for him has never been challenged? Good point. Thank you, Wendy. Wendy sends me loads of sermons online, so it's probably because of you that I I made that good point. You probably fed it to me over the years. The devil and his army of invisible demons are certainly good at challenging your love for God. Would you agree? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Has your love and devotion to God ever been challenged? How often does the devil challenge your love for God? I put in brackets, sometimes all the flipping time. Yeah? How does God, sorry, how does the devil challenge our love for God, our devotion for God? Well, for me, I experience the kind of like the short-term bursts of day-to-day pop-up challenges that come along, that the devil brings my way. Often the things that appeal to the lusts of the flesh, 
and my ego and things like that. That's one of the ways he does short bursts of challenges in my devotion to Jesus and my choosing him rather than the way of the world. As well as that, I think the devil barrages us with chronic long-term challenges as well that really challenge our our devotion and love for God. Ever experienced a long-term chronic challenge for me? Probably sickness. Yeah? I've got certain ailments that uh, mean I don't feel well sometimes and I have to have a really restricted diet and sometimes that is so challenging. I don't want to do anything at all and yet I know the Lord wants me to do this or do that today. Uh, Another one very quickly. um, (laughs) The devil sends your spouse to challenge you. No, I I I think your spouse is a gift from God. The sad thing is, the devil tempts your spouse to challenge you. That's the... um, it sounds a bit weird, but I think the enemy groomed me from the age of five years old to smoke. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? I grew up in a family that never smoked. None of my parents, none of our family. We were all non-smokers. And yet, from my memory, from the age of five, I was determined to smoke. I made myself pretend cigarettes. I used to cut out the advertisements in the magazines of cigarette packets and make my own, cut them out, make my own packets, then roll my own cigarette, pretend cigarettes. Then I'd go up to the woods when I was old enough, about 10 or 11, and smoke tea leaves uh, in, in, just in, in almost cardboard. It was, it was stunk horrible. I remember one day my best friend and I got on a bus and uh, we were smoking a couple of our tea leaf cigarettes and this Rastafarian behind us said, Char, what you smoking? And we looked at Barry and said, it smells like pond weed. So, uh, and then when I was old enough to buy cigarettes, probably about 13, I used to sneak off, not with my friends, just on my own, to, to buy cigarettes. And I think before then, my dad was so fed up with me having a thing about smoking that he bought cigarettes from home. And he bought Rothmans home. Now, Rothmans were probably one of the strongest uh, cigarettes going. I don't know if he knew that, but the, the idea was to put me off. My brother was instantly sick as soon as he tried it. But me, I was, war. this is good. Um, so so <laughs> I tried giving up many, many, many times. I didn't give up until I was 32 years old, I think, 36, 32. Um, and um, I always gave up, but the desire never left me. Then one day I met, I'll tell you another story, another time, but I met a prostitute, and right there and then God just took away the desire to smoke and I never smoked since but before then I was just like had this desire all from from the age of five that's another way I think the devil gets his hooks into young children sometimes and leads them on a path that um, if they believe it and carry on uh, sad victims victims of the enemy okay thinking about that do you think this is controversial But do you think it is possible that Satan also inflicts humanity with gender, identity, and same-sex attraction issues, even from birth? To challenge people's devotion to God, or just stick two fingers up at God? In the book of Job, Satan tried to lay it on poor Job so thick that he felt sure that Job would crumble and be no longer devoted to God. Even reject God to his face. But was Job's love for God victorious? Will he? Well, he's probably tasting the uh, tree of life right now, isn't he, Job? 
He was victorious, wasn't he? His love for God was victorious, no matter how much the devil tried to challenge him. It seems to us so cruel that Satan was allowed to do such a thing to Job and his family, and it seems confusing to think that Satan was allowed in the garden, but allowed he was and still is. So what are we going to do about it? What, what should Eve have done about it? Because Satan wants to challenge your devotion to God to get you to go your own way and not God's, just like he did. And he's good at doing it, isn't he? He's a vicious spirit with a ferocious hunger to steal, kill and destroy, with a massive, devious, cruel, deceptive and invisible army of demons who are able to inflict mankind spiritually physically, emotionally, and mentally. Again, sounds cruel, doesn't it? But he can, and he does. There might not be a demon behind every bush, but there sure is a devil behind everything that is not good or very good. But thankfully, in between Genesis and Revelation, the Bible is one big story of how God is always working with and through his people to reverse the curse and destroy the works of the devil. We're not on our own, are we? We're not hopeless. He's always working to set the captives free, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. The devil afflicts us all those ways, and God is working to set us free from all those things as well, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And Jesus Christ's ministry 2,000 years ago is the ultimate proof that God extending salvation from the dominion of darkness is not just about you entering a devil-free zone one day, although that does happen, which is good, isn't it? It's also very much an ever-present help in trouble right now that Jesus' ministry proves that the kingdom of heaven is ever-present and eager to partner with us to destroy the works of the devil here on earth. Amen? Jesus has given us authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. He's commissioned us to go and do the works he did. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be in us. We've been given spiritual armour to fight the fight. He's enabled us to come before his throne in prayer. And like Mike said this morning, he's given us the church to encourage us, equip us, and minister to one another. And so much more. The trouble is that sometimes, because the enemy is invisible, he's crafty, and he's tenacious, and sometimes nothing seems to change as far as we can see, we get fatigued, battle-weary, and we get disheartened. And it becomes easy to fall for his deception that God has changed. I know, that he, I know what he said, but maybe his will is different for me nowadays. You know, I know he said he was the healer and Jesus healed all who came to him, but that hasn't happened for me, so I'm guessing his will has changed for me nowadays. Rather than seeing that there's an amazing invisible battle going on, 
and the enemy is resistant to the hilt until he has to go. Nearly there, by the way. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last days there will be an increase of wickedness. So when we see so many things that people are struggling with that are not good according to God's original word, do we just assume that God has now changed his mind and his ways to accommodate the way things are now? Or do we recognise this is the increase of wickedness? Satan's influence. And that these days there are even more widespread spiritual, physical, mental and emotional, cultural pressures on people to challenge their love and obedience for Jesus, including matters of identity, gender and sexuality. Do we look at the times and think, well, God must have changed because these are happening right now? Or do we look at the times and say, God has not changed, what we are seeing is the enemy really messing people up. Doesn't mean God accepts it. God loves them, but he doesn't embrace what's going on. Okay. In the garden, the knowledge of evil was contained to just the roots and the fruit of just one tree. Sadly, ever since Adam and Eve ate from that tree, every human being has been connected to the roots and fruit of that tree. Even from birth, as unfair as it sounds, a baby is connected to the knowledge of good and evil. The enemy has connection to that child because of sin. Even though it hasn't sinned yet, sin throughout humankind gives enemy access. He doesn't care if they're just a baby. We are all casualties of the work of the devil. But thankfully... Jesus came to make a way for us to be victorious now and especially into eternity. Finally, let's just read some scripture. 1 Peter, you can can leave Revelation 2 now and you can turn, you can leave Genesis 2 as well and just turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember, he created Adam and Eve in the beginning in his likeness. They were so much like God without even even to do anything, just be within his simple instructions. But the enemy came along and said, well, if you do this, you'll be like God. It says from verse 3, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Are you born again? Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I think that's the spiritual battle that we're in and the the victories we see when we put on our armour and come against the kingdom of darkness. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Anyone experience grief in all kinds of trials? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. These trials prove your faith. The enemy is around still, I think, because your faith needs to be challenged. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You go through trials and yet your love for him remains. You're victorious. Even if you're battle weary, even if you're half giving up, even if you've failed, if your love for him is still there, desiring to follow him and obey him, it's been challenged but you're victorious. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One day Jesus says you'll be eating from the tree of life. No more tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip to verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. There's a change of habits. There's a change of thinking. There's a change of doing things when you come to Christ and are transformed. You're his. You no longer belong to the world. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in, the, in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, Andy, this is what you said, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Which rather say, sounds the same as God saying, you were created in my likeness, so be like me. Verse 14. 